Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Jesse Moritz of the Australian National University and recently a postdoctoral fellow at the Transregional Institute of Princeton University. Uh, Jesse, welcome to POMEPS. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot of research about uh, the so-called rentier state, the oil states of the Gulf, and a lot of people make assumptions about how citizens actually feel about this so-called uh, rentier bargain. And you've been doing this research for years now, going around and actually asking citizens what they think about it. Tell us a little bit about what you found and why you think it's interesting. Um, so what I became particularly interested in was this core relationship between societal quiescence and oil. This is the kind of common wisdom, is that when you distribute wealth to society, and it's kind of related back to sort of rational choice mechanisms, when you satisfy people materially, they won't be interested in anything else. That's the oil societal quiescence or the co-optation mechanism. That mm -hmm. core relationship, I found it interesting that we hadn't really looked at that um, very, we, we hadn't looked at it very closely. We hadn't looked at it based on the perspective of potential protesters themselves. So a lot of my work was about going out to some archetypal, you know, the original rentier states in the Gulf. So I looked at Qatar and Bahrain and Oman, and, and I, um, I was starting to look at Saudi as well, and try to access protesters um, who'd been, and I was looking in the post-2011 period, so I was really looking at this period of regional mobilization, and then we um, had some articles looking at, well, actually, this reaffirms the rentier state. So I wanted to look at, does it really reaffirm the rentier state? Is that really the relationship that's going on here? Is that because these oil-rich states have, have transferred, they've increased their distributions to society. So they made, uh, you know, billions of dollars in increased uh, public sector employment, in direct transfers of wealth from the state to citizens. And I'm leaving out migrant labourers mm -hmm. entirely from this discussion, you'll notice. <laughs> but I'm really looking at the state-citizen relationship. So I went around and I tried to access uh, protesters who'd been involved in protests in some of these archetypal rentier states since 2011. And I also tried to spread my net pretty widely and also talk to members of the state and also to pro-government groups and to mm -hmm. loyalists and to understand, okay, so if they're mobilizing in support of the state, is it because they're financially satisfied and they, they view the state as the most likely actor mm -hmm. who's going to continue giving them wealth? So um, I came up with, there were about 140 interviews in between 2013 and 2014 with, with citizens in Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman. And then since then, I've done another uh, 30 or so interviews and gone back and reconnected uh, to, mm -hmm. especially on further trips back to Bahrain and also now Saudi Arabia as well. So it's really interesting because, you know, we, we, we look at this, uh, this connection or this mechanism and it just makes intuitive sense that people would, you know, would basically follow their rational self-interest and be, you know, and be co-opted. Um, but then when you think about how people actually think about their political identities or their relationship with the state, maybe that's not exactly how they think. What are some of the things that people would tell you when you would ask them about, you know, about this theory? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing, I try not to bring up the theory straight away because I didn't want to set them on a particular path of, of, of thinking about this. I tried to sort of get them to ask very generally, oh, okay, so you were interested in, you were involved in those protests in 2011, why did you get involved? And then I would try to evaluate their response to say, were mm -hmm. they talking about material issues? Were they 
unemployed, for example, were they frustrated with unemployment? That would mean that it's not that, you know, oil rents or gas rents can't be used to co-opt individuals, but the state is being ineffective in doing so. Um, but that's not what you found. Well, in a couple cases, that's what I found. So among Sahari protesters in Oman, that's what I found, hmm. um, that unemployment was a major factor. Um, among uh, 14th February uh, protesters in Bahrain, um, I found that they were largely motivated by kind of a sense of economic deprivation or a sense of inequality, that they weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't receiving a fair share. And that's interesting in itself, but that's not a sort of, that's not going to challenge this core relationship. What did challenge it were, I found individuals who they expressed a purely non-material or, or primarily, because of course there's mm-hmm. so many different reasons. Of course. Yeah. Um, but a primarily non-material reason for mobilizing. And then on top of that, I also tried to trace their political activism at the time. So mm-hmm. if we look at someone like Ibrahim Sharif in Bahrain, for example, he's the uh, um, major Sunni head, former head of Wa'ad, now being uh, dissolved, but at the time period I was looking at, um, it was uh, it was active and he was a kind of self, major private sector figure. He was wealthy. He'd had some... You know, he'd been shifting in and out of uh, private sector, but he'd had some important contracts with the state. Um, the idea that someone like him was remaining, he, he was politically mobilizing because he was dissatisfied with his economic benefits didn't really work well in, in his case. Um, so then I also interviewed him and traced, I tracked sort of his political mobilization. And then I found some interesting relationships with repression. Mm-hmm. Um, which can be connected back to the volunteer state, but it can also be independent of it. There are plenty of resource-poor right. states that use repression. Um, so what I found was that in some cases, um, uh, repression was enough to prevent or to cease political action. Just raising the costs. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you think about, uh, um, and I'm not drawing from a particular example here, but this was a trend I found, um, if an individual was receiving... You know, they received a public sector job, paid free health care, free education, but at the same time, a family member of theirs was incarcerated. The the cost-benefit analysis mm-hmm. of mobilization, I think, shifts. So much something about the feeling of injustice or... Especially if it's on a personal level. I mean, the costs of them for not mobilizing, I think, become, well, if I don't mobilize, my mm-hmm. my wife or my, my brother or my father is going to remain in jail. Um, whereas if I do mobilize, you know, maybe I will bear, maybe I will be fired from my public sector job, or maybe I will lose these material benefits. But on the other hand, my, you know, and if they're and if they're, and if they're motivated by that kind of personal or family uh, issue or, or emotional uh, yeah. sense, then the state offering a thousand dollar bonus in their paycheck might not actually do the trick. No, there was a funny. Um, there was a in in Bahrain, which is you know the most overt case of of street demonstrations, at least, that I was looking at other countries Mm -hmm. between Oman, Qatar, and Bahrain. Um, There was a phrase that protesters used in 2011 when the uh, Bahraini government tried to uh, give, I think it was about 1,000 Bahraini dinar per family. They distributed this wealth. And it's not that I would argue the state thought that was going to be enough to prevent political mobilization, but the reaction to that, I think, tells us something about the effectiveness of co-optation. So the uh, the response among protesters, there was a phrase that they would say, uh, La Alf Alfain, um, our appointment is on Monday. Uh, so not 1,000 or 2,000, our appointment with the king to, or our mm-hmm. appointment to protest is on Monday. 
So, and I also looked at kind of, I've become very interested in political graffiti as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I noticed, I have pictures, for example, of um, uh, slogans such as Yaskat Hamad or Overthrow Hamad um, for the sake of the martyrs. And it has pictures of, of the martyrs. And this was emblazoned, for example, on the side of a public housing project that the government was providing for citizens. So this kind of, I mean, this I think brings into question, doesn't necessarily fully overturn it, but I mm-hmm. think means that we need to look much more carefully at how people are um, reacting to different forms of governance, whether it's co-optation or oppression or something else. And also, and I haven't really mentioned this yet, how they move between different types of mobilization. So I wasn't just looking at street protests, I was also looking at use of Twitter, um, of posting on kind of public websites or forums and so I, I found it, I think, really interesting, mm-hmm. maybe perhaps my newest idea of why people mobilize or don't in other religious contexts. So you must have had to look pretty hard to find the protesters in Qatar. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, of course, there were no street protests in, in Qatar. Um, and so what I looked at instead were, uh, and, and perhaps that itself tells us something about our volunteer state theory, but I wasn't trying to look at that correlation mm-hmm. between this is one of the wealthiest rentier states in the world and it's had no street protests. I was trying to look beyond that. So uh, what I looked for and what I found were um, some Qataris who had mobilized around what I consider sort of material motivations. So there was a frustration with the major telecom uh, company, QTEL. Um, so there was a hashtag Twitter movement uh, in Qatar. That So I, I interviewed some of the Qataris who were involved in that on mm-hmm. Twitter um, and I uh, but that, I think, is related more to what we need to consider a formal rent-seeking mm-hmm. um, rather than a challenge to rentier state theory. Um, and then, um, yeah, and, and then in, I also looked for members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and Courtney Greer has done fantastic mm-hmm. work on how rentierism works when you're interacting with uh, religious networks or religious causes for mobilization as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so... When when you talk to people who were not protesters, when you were talking to kind of loyalists or that sort of thing, how would they talk about their relationship with the state? I mean, did they primarily talk about it as a it's a good deal for us materially, or did they invoke things like nationalism or patriotism or some other kind of connection? Well, that was really interesting as well, and I'm trying to publish a journal article about this at the moment. Um, looking at the politics of loyalty mm-hmm. and because even among loyalists I didn't find that material motivations were they were certainly not the primary reason that was expressed in my interviews um, separating that in terms of political action is hard because these the groups that I was talking uh, that I was looking at were who were loyalists they were the groups who were sort of continually receiving a higher than average share of the rentier pie if you like so I couldn't look at uh, I couldn't I couldn't necessarily right. disaggregate the two. Um, but what I did notice was that they did rely much more on a sense of responsiveness from the state. And I think this is something that the Cesare data the, um, mm-hmm. at Qatar University supports as well, is that responsiveness is really important. So, for example, even on minor issues in, in Qatar, um, the sense that the state was listening to the citizens. So uh, even on, um, there was a, a statue of Zinedine Zidane, and he was... Uh, it was set up on the Corniche in Qatar. 
uh, and there was a public outcry. He was headbutting. It was his infamous, infamous. I really enjoy that I could put the term infamous headbutt into my PhD <laughs> thesis because of this. It was relevant uh, because there was a public outcry about that statue that people, I think, felt that um, their their hero or their icon was being degraded by this piece of public art, which mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. guess alternatively that was one of the messages of the piece of art. But in any case, the public outcry within a day or two um, the state had relocated the statue outside of the public eye. Now, that's very different to political liberalisation or democratisation. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's really eons away, but it is a responsiveness, um, and that's just one example. So people looking at the Gulf now and over the last few years, um, you know, they look at the price of oil goes down and the budget constraints start hitting many of these states. You know, what, what would you expect to see? Um, given what you're describing, uh, if the material, you know, the ability to give the material payoffs go down, is this largely irrelevant or are there connections in the other direction that you saw emerging? Well, I think it does overall highlight how much this, the legitimacy of the state is perhaps not always based primarily on material relationships. So maybe that does explain why we haven't seen massive popular, we, they, we have seen mm-hmm. some mobilizations uh, once the oil price was down and some of the Gulf states started removing uh, subsidies or experimenting with when can they introduce taxes, what's the popular reaction to that going to be. So perhaps the fact that we haven't seen um, sort of 2011-style mobilizations as you might in a purely traditional mm-hmm. rental estate theory perspective expect to see when you're removing these um, these benefits, perhaps that's part of the explanation. But I think there's so many other factors that are that are occurring at the same time. We're also in a period, you know, uh, seven, eight years on from the Arab Spring, a period of political depression. So repressive tactics have increased. So the likelihood of, mm-hmm. of mass-style um, popular street protests, I think, are, are still lower in the Gulf region for reasons that have nothing to do with the rental estate, but have to do with the failure of Arab Spring mm-hmm. movements in neighboring countries. And you know, I, I did find in interviews with Bahrainis and Omanis and Qataris that they were looking at the examples of these neighboring states. And, um, and in uh, ret- when I returned to Bahrain, for example, there was a sort of a sense of despondence among political dissidents in particular, saying that, well, you know, the, the Arab Spring hasn't worked. You know, look at Syria, look at Libya. We don't want to end up like that. Mm-hmm. Here in Bahrain, there's the political societies one after another are being uh, dissolved. Um, so... Right. I think the sense of opportunity, this is sort of basic social movement theory, is right. that resources are important, so is opportunity. So one element of this uh, this kind of classic uh, rentier state theory would be not necessarily about mobilization, but about democracy. This notion, you know, no taxation, no representation, and the notion that people don't really care about uh, voting in a, in a distributive state. Um, in, in your interviews and discussions, were you able to probe that mechanism and, and that relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because what, I, what I've argued in some places is that we have to understand, before we get to oil and gas and democratization, we have to understand oil and gas and lack of mobilization, whether that's through the absence of taxation or whether that's through uh, co-optation or... or the funding of a repressive apparatus, whatever causal mechanism we think is important, we have to understand the oil societal quiescence link first, and then we can move on to will it overthrow mm-hmm. a regime or an authoritarian regime, and then will the outcome of that authoritarian regime overthrow be democracy? There's so many steps uh, mm-hmm. in that process. 
what I found from the interviews that was quite interesting, of course, is that um, the the mobilizations that did occur weren't necessarily pushing for democracy. That wasn't um, necessarily the point of their political mobilization. Um, in that would be uh, wasn't the case in Oman. wasn't the case in Qatar. Um, it was only the case among a subset of I would say sort of more uh, radical opposition in Bahrain. So the calls there were for reform of the system, which is still a type of political liberalization, um, but not democratization. Mm -hmm. So in part, perhaps the case studies that I was specifically looking at are not the best test of calls for democracy because it, they weren't on the whole call for, mm -hmm. calls for democracy. But again, I think the other thing that's interesting about one two state theory is even though the international financial relationship of rent inflows coming into the state is important, we still have a sense that the state is this kind of little bubble um, of, of this unique state society relationship. And at the same, what I found from interviews was that, again, the Qataris and Bahrainis and Omanis and Saudis too were looking at examples of democratization in the region and not looking particularly favorably on Morocco and Kuwait mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. Gulf citizens, Kuwait for important investors. So if they don't, if people generally weren't mobilizing for democracy, um, there's still things that you see them asking of the state. In other words, I think one of the things which is interesting from this conversation is the extent to which they're not simply willing to be passive recipients of the largesse of the state. So if you could summarize, like from, from your conversations and interviews, what sorts of things did citizens seem to want from these distributive states? Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm not the only person who's been looking at this, of course, but I think corruption was a major factor and I tried to distinguish between kind of material goals and demands because again I was still trying to look at how much is material welfare a factor here um, so corruption I thought is a mixed one and, and that kind of shows you how much all these political models and theories that we come up with they when they run into real world examples they get infinitely more complex um, but corruption could be motivated by or mobilizations around corruption could be motivated by a sense that individuals are not receiving their share of, of uh, rent distributions um, but they also in addressing corruption imply a transfer of some level of, of power from state to society that is the society holding the state accountable mm -hmm. um, and it, if transparency results from that that would be sort of a very tentative political liberalization in my view um, so corruption was very key um, the the Exact demands differed by by state. So in in Oman, for example, you have some material demands there. Uh, in the south, one of the things uh, that Omanis called for was um, cheaper flight tickets um, mm. between uh, Muscat and uh, Salalah, um, so that people could more easily travel. Expansion of um, expansion of public sector employment was pretty general across the region. And again, this aligns with rent seeking so it's not a challenge to one two state theory um, and expansion of public sector employment expansion of scholarships for students I think this comes back to you know problems with development strategies and that there are fairly high there were fairly high unemployment rates at least in, in mm. Oman and Bahrain uh, maybe less so Qatar because it just had so much wealth per capita uh, and because of the 90% categories and some of the years that I was looking at worked for the public sector um, but the so corruption, um, uh, various sort of particular material issues, whether it's public sector employment or scholarships or, or flight tickets or something else, 
But then also um, you had in, um, perhaps in, in, in your mind, you occasionally had clones that they needed the Raider, the Mantis Ashura needed more power. Um, the use of repression against the state, the state had to be accountable where it used repression against protesters. This was especially came out of uh, protesters in Sahar after the state cracked down. Um, and, and, and Bahrain's a more extreme example because, of course, the demands mm-hmm. there were much more political um, and they uh, called for you know, proper reform of the political system. The Raider uh, returned to the uh, unicameral uh, parliamentary system rather than having a elected lower house and an appointed upper house, which essentially means the state can, through its uh, clients and yeah. the upper house, can, can veto legislation. So, taking this to a, a case that you you know, you said you're just starting to study, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you are looking at uh, say Mohammed bin Salman's reform efforts and his attempts to shift away from the oil economy and you know, letting women drive and uh, trying to promote private sector employment and that sort of thing. What would you expect would be the general societal response? Does this increase or decrease citizen uh, kind of attachment to the state and perceptions of legitimacy? That's a really, I mean, I, like many other people, are still trying to puzzle this out, um, if you like. I think because of the because most of my research is finding that non-material legitimacy is so important, a lot of these moves that MBS is making make sense because they're an attempt to reach out in in a non-distributional way. At the same time, if uh, my work doesn't say that material legitimacy is irrelevant, not at all. Um, So a big question for the Saudi case will be, is this very ambitious, highly ambitious and quite risky um, Vision 2030 or the National Transformation Program, is that going to work? Um, and so that was one of the questions I was asking when I was in Saudi in March. Um, and I'm still kind of uh, collecting all the data from that. But I would say sort of mixed opinions um, on that at best. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, we've been speaking with uh, Jessie Moritz. Uh, she's at the Australian National University and a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Princeton's Transregional Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you.